Turn to Exodus chapter 17, Exodus chapter 17, and put a marker there. It's going to take me a little while to get there this morning. So put a mark in Exodus chapter 17. You know, I hope that you experience the same things I experienced. Brother Mike was teaching this morning, and I get excited. I mean, I'll put it to you this way. When Elizabeth, who was carrying John the Baptist, and Mary came, the babe, John, flipped in the womb. Hey, we have that experience. We hear God's, we just hear how good God is and how He's put things together. And it just, I don't know, it's exciting to me. And, and uh, next week sounds like it's going to even get a little more exciting. Um, if you don't have that in your heart, ask the Lord whether you're really saved or not. Now, as I preach this morning, uh, I, I just want to give you a, a warning, okay? I'm going to take some liberty here and some pictures and typology, okay, um, that I believe will help you. But if you, if you start to nitpick at it, um, you could lose, lose track. Listen to what God has to say to you through the message. Some of it might say, wow, that's, that's pretty heavy. I don't, I don't understand it. Some of you are going to say, whoa, I, ne- I need to mark that down. I need to look at that. There, there's something there for me, you know. Uh, there's all sorts of responses and reactions. But I'll tell you what, every one of you here, I probably have heard misquote the Scripture, say a wrong word. Do I sit there and afterwards say, Wow, did you hear they misquoted a word? No, I mean, we all try to say the word of God how it's written, but sometimes we make mistakes. Don't let that stuff hinder or cloud you from hearing what God has to say to you today. Last week, we embarked on a little adventure with the Israelites in Exodus. Now, I want you to understand that there's so many like layers of how God deals in the Bible, they're intriguing. When, when we looked at the seven churches, there's, there's several different like layers you can look at in that. In this area of the Exodus, I want you to understand that in the, for the most part here, what we're talking about is the, uh, the drawing out of a nation, okay? It doesn't end with some of them dying in the wilderness. That God's still dealing with the nation of Israel, but we can pull out things uh, that we can see that are true, that are typologies, that are consistent, uh, like with salvation. So we saw the, the Red Sea as the Israelites came uh, to the brink of it. Actually, they were headed another direction, and God moved them, turned them in between the sea and the army on purpose. You know, God does that in people's lives. An unexpected turn to where they finally realize there's the sea I can't 
I can't. There's nothing in me that can. And they look back and they see the army and the army and this will defeat me. Sin will defeat me. I'm caught in this place. I have nothing else but to cry out unto God. And God does a work that none of us can do. And it's kind of, I see the picture of the Red Sea. And I see us going forth in that Red Sea collapsing and, and God taking care of all our past. He puts our sins in the depths of the sea. As far as from the east is from the west, we look back at that. But then God drops us off into this beautiful, wonderful beach. That is, if you call a sandy, dry desert a beach. <laughs> All right? And we learned that this new journey in life is a series of highs and lows. It's a time of uncertainty. We look at this time of God trying to prove his people, and this will go real well with this morning's uh, message in Sunday school, that his people would learn to trust him, that they would get to know him better, that they would be able to rest in him. You know, I was going to a customer uh, this past Monday with Shane, uh, for, for something for work. He decided to drive and he had a nice, fully equipped rental car. And as we were going down the highway, he set the car on cruise and showed me how the car would automatically follow the car in front of us, either speeding up or slowing down to maintain a safe distance by maintaining a safe response time. Now, technically speaking, I know how all that kind of works and it's kind of intriguing. For you, some of you, it's like, oh, it just works. You can actually even adjust the response time to how close or how far you want to follow. Just with a little button. But what he said after that particularly caught my attention after I was preaching on Sunday. He said that early on with this thing, he had an extremely hard time using it. Now, he didn't use these exact words, but what he said is he had to prove it to work before he could believe and trust in it. Now, if you think about it, how different is man's ways from God's ways? Many times, it is polar opposite. When it seems right for us to activate revenge, to get our pound of flesh, which we deserve, God says to forgive. When we fall into difficulties... In the flesh, we get bummed about it, but God says to count it all joy. And we could go on and on and on. I mean, it's a different scheme. The Israelites passed through the Red Sea on dry ground. What kind of life would they, would they have brought with them? A way of living in the flesh. This is what they knew, and in bondage to their circumstances. They established, they learned and established that way of life for 400 years. It was a life of survival. On the other side of the Red Sea was a completely new way of living by the Spirit based on full dependence on God. It was not paradise by any stretch of the imagination. It was a desert full of fleshly difficulty. It was purposeful by God to bring a people who lived by sight in the flesh to operate in the Spirit by faith. To learn not to trust in their self and past experience, but to trust in God, perhaps in opposition to their learned experiences. 
judgment of the past. What happened to Israel could be likened to a poor child with no parents who fended for himself, stealing, cheating, or whatever to survive, but suddenly finds himself adopted by a set of parents who lovingly begins to raise the child in a morally upright way and with new manners applied. There's a reality of that today. It's called foster parenting. Many a movie is based on the ability for someone bad to turn good. What is common about the theme is it is not easy. It takes time, and no matter how loving and good the parent or teacher may be, it is ultimately the child or student to make the choice of what they will believe and act upon. Every believer was once an unbeliever. We were a poor, cheating, lying child of the devil doing whatever was right in our own eyes to satisfy our desires and run from, ignoring, or putting a cloak over a guilty conscience. But when that sinner turned to Christ as his Savior and Lord, he entered into the kingdom of God that runs on an entirely different perspective with an entirely different manner of living. In our old nature, we may have thought it that when we got saved that, th that we were going to live like a spoiled child, <laughs> like spoiled rich kids. And we are rich kids. <laughs> but we soon find out that our King Jesus came to save and serve mankind loving the unlovable, sacrificing his life for others, living no more based, we're to live no more based on getting, but true life is based on giving. And this is the life he leads us into. The Israelites found them like a child in a school they didn't expect. Living and following God was not something they understood or liked learning about. And the first generation who passed through the Red Sea, those 20 and upward, save two, Joshua and Caleb, will reject a life in belief, love, and obedience to God. God would see it too that they would die in the wilderness and never see the promised land that he was leading them to. And by the way, may I make a statement? You know, when we look at these pictures of the, the Red Sea and the wilderness, and then they're going to cross over the Jordan that's not into heaven there. That's, that's a mature life to live for God. That's where we are to go. That is expected of us. What was different about this generation? Well, one thing was their experience and memories were more of what God did through the plagues. The, the, the new generation that was there, you know, they didn't have all that 400 years of experience they were young they probably didn't experience a lot of things they did but they did experience probably their biggest experiences if you think about it what was their big things the plagues going through the red sea that's their memories okay it was a little bit different for that generation In another way, they were no different than their fathers. They would need to make a decision to live for God for themselves, but it, but it would be in the days of the conquest of the promised land, and, a whole, and as a whole, that generation did not fare well either. 
the first generation Israelites remind me of those who get saved later in life. First generation Christians with a huge bag of experience of the old life and its temporal pleasures, they have the issue of looking and going back to it. The second group of Christians were raised in a church nine months before they were born. <laughs> Hope you get that picture. You got that picture. <laughs> they grew up in the traditions and religion of God. They were raised with the manners and morality. They experienced the physical acts of separation. They were raised amongst the works of God. They learned how to conform on the outside. They memorize scripture. They go to church. They make a false profession, perhaps. They get baptized but come out a wet sinner. They took care of the convicting pressure from the outside, but they struggle with the convicting truth from the inside. Or perhaps did they get saved, but instead of thirsting for God in their life to, to quench their thirst, they turn to the physical things of this world to quench their thirst. No different than the first generation Israelites who placed their desires to return to the old way of life. What did the next generation of Israelites do? They turned from God's chastening hand that came upon them, and after that, God proved them again and again by saving them in the time of the judges. How did that end? They rejected God and wanted a king after the order of the world. God proved them by giving them a king named Saul after the order of the world. It failed miserably, and he gave him a king, David, a man after God's own heart. Where would that end? That would end at a divided kingdom to a subservient kingdom to various world rulers to a religious kingdom under the thumb of Roman rule and who, what religion would crucify the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This was the basis of last week's message for me to know and for you to find out, or let me state a little differently, a life lived, loved, and fulfilled in God. Only you can find out and decide for yourself. Now in the case of car of the car Shane was driving, he needed to experience a new way of operating that car. To let the car do the driving and not him. This is exactly what God is doing after he saves us. He is helping us to trust him to drive our lives. We said we'd give it to him to make him Lord, but uh, admitting and doing is, is, is two different things, isn't it? We are to prove his worthiness in the very depths of our heart, to fall in love with him, to trust and obey him, to worship him, not because he is worthy, because he is worthy regardless of what we think, but to worship him because we have personally discovered him to be worthy in our life. He is worthy. I'm finding that out more and more every day. We gave God the keys of our life, and he is the driver. The next step is to learn to ride in the passenger seat. He does it by bringing us to heart-trying experiences, to panic in our flesh, to see how time and time again he manages every panic moment to perfection, and he never gets lost or off course. To bring us to the point that when the direction 
that when the direction, place, and circumstances he leads us to, like the three Hebrews facing the fiery furnace, or Daniel thrown in the lion's den, we trust that God has us there for a reason. You never notice how calm, how restful those, those men were? We trust Him. One way or the other, we realize the end result is we'll be drawn closer to Him, if not right before Him in death, through death. Should we purpose to see the truth of God operating in our life, we begin to trust more. We begin to gain experience that gains more trust. We begin to listen more acutely to God. We begin to be more interested in God. We become more bold in God. And at some point, we learn just to rest in God. What made Joshua and Caleb different than the rest of the Israelites? Numbers 14, 21. God says, but as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times, that scripture was referred to today, and have not hearkened to my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him, we need to make sure that our children, our families, ourselves have another spirit within us. And hath followed me fully. I love the message that Tim preached or taught on. But it was actually preaching. Him will I bring into the land whereinto he went, and his seed shall possess it. You know, when my wife goes on a long trip with me, my wife takes her trusty pillow, and she goes to sleep. She puts her trust in me and my record of driving. She does not put her full trust in me because when I run over the rumble strips, whether purposely or not, it alarms her. You know, without a great deal of trust, it's nearly impossible to go to sleep in a car which is witnessed by me when my wife is driving and I'm in the passenger seat. It doesn't matter how tired I am, sitting in the passenger seat while my wife is driving is more potent than any energy drink on the market. <laughs> it may not be my wife's driving record, that's the problem. It may not be her skill in driving. There are times when the wife is a better driver or more awake or more alert. Sometimes the problem is that you are so used to having control of the car that no matter who is driving, it's hard to let go of being in control, which leads to backseat driving. Other times, you just don't approve of the other person's driving style. They drive too close, they accelerate too fast, they stop too quickly. Perhaps they drive too slow. They're not aggressive enough. Bottom line, they just don't do it like you would do it. Now, are you getting the picture of trying to follow God? Another picture you might understand better is raising your children. Along the road, they have to experience difficult things. And it's through those experiences they learn to deal with more difficult things. It's called maturity. And that's how they grow into adulthood. But a parent, like we could think, oh, why didn't God make it easy? No. What would a parent do if he, he just 
gave them a pass to avoid any challenge in their children's life. They've just raised a person to live as an adult with the maturity of a child. They are no longer an asset to society. They become a liability to the society. This is a root problem with welfare and socialism. It teaches dependency. But may I remind you, should you mature into independent living and you go no further, you land in the realm of humanism. It is only when we seek wholly after God to give our bodies and life to Him do we find the healing that the nations need. The Israelites, as they went into the desert, came as a socialistic people under the rule of communist Egyptian rule. I look at the Red Sea crossing like the time of salvation. It reminds me of the guy who signs up for the armed forces with all its glorious ideas of being a soldier. Then they go to boot camp. I look at the wilderness as the boot camp training of a Christian. A difficult place to discipline you and see if you can follow authority, whether it makes sense or not, or is fair or not. They are teaching you to follow the commands of your leader, irregardless of any circumstances that may oppose that command, and they make sure that they don't make sense, that they are hard. May I remind you of the first boot camp experience with the Israelites, not much different than with the armed forces boot camp. You will not eat when you are hungry. You will not eat what you want. You will eat what I give you and when I tell you to eat. If, if uh, I tell you to stay, you will stay. When I say to you, go, you will go. You will not think for yourself. I'll do the thinking for you. That's kind of how boot camp is. It's important. Because without that authority, that, that we know that. We know what success is in battle. And it has, you have to beat this mindset in. It sounds mean, but it's for survival. It's for the strength of the army. It is for the freedom and protection of your loved ones. It's to prepare them to battle, to make them a soldier, preparing you for victory in battle. Today we're going to study the next training exercise God will put in front of his people in the wilderness boot camp. God will teach them how to fight. Thus the title of the message is How to Fight. Father, we took a long time to get here. I pray that you will speak to each one of us that we would understand how to fight this morning, how God taught his people to fight. And we'll thank you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 17.8, where I had you put your finger at, Here's the next big experience for the children of Israel. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I'll stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said unto him. Yeah, I like that obedience. He didn't ask any questions. He just did. And fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed, and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hand were heavy, 
And they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, if you have the ability to start to look at pictures, God should show you, listen to him, look at the typology. Let's look at both armies of this war. Let's, let's look at Amalek first. He, like the Israelites, was a descendant of Isaac and Abraham. He was the grandson of Esau. What do we know about Esau? Esau was twin with Jacob, later called Israel. So here it was. <laughs> the same, same ones coming against each other. Esau gave his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of pottage. He was a hunter. He had a temper and vengeance upon his brother Esau for stealing the birthright and his father's blessing. Esau received a blessing from his father also, we found out. Later in Esau, in, in Esau's life, a great, he comes with a great company to go meet Jacob, and Jacob remembers Esau's commitment to kill him. And surprise to Jacob, Esau is glad to see him and to meet his family. What turned his heart back to a good relationship with his brother? His own wealth. He didn't care about God. Things were good for him. Man, things were turning. He was on top of the world. That made his mind change to Esau. What, what, a, what a very frail thing to hang on to. From the time of selling his birthright to the time of his love and care for his brother was dependent on one thing, materialism and satisfaction in the flesh. Wasn't it that that made him angry because he wasn't going to get something? Esau was not a man guided by godly principle, else he would have chosen starvation over giving up his birthright. Even if he did not live by principle to God, he did not live by principle to himself. Else he would have fulfilled his commitment to kill Jacob when he met him. Amalek was grandson to Esau, representative of a life found in temporal fulfillment by the world. 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And God said he's going to remove that. From heaven. We describe the Amalekites in this fight. In this corner we have the reigning champion of the world undefeated with extreme physical size and strength and armed and trained with the best weapons of the world. In the other corner is the clear underdog. Israel known as sheep herders, worn down desert dwellers armed with rods and staffs. But since we did an up close look at the personal in a personal interview and lineage of the Amalekites, let's take a close look at the lineage of Jacob's leadership. Genesis 25, 19, And these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padanaram, the sister to Laban, the Syrian. 
And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him. And Rebekah was conceived. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it be so, why am I thus? And she went up to inquire the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, two nations are in thy womb. And two manners, two manners of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red all over, like an hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out, and, he, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel. Uh, when you have grandkids, you, you get pictures of this stuff. And his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years old when she bare them. And the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Opposites from the outside, opposites from the inside, and loved opposingly by their parents. There's a picture coming here. It's interesting to me that we see a love attachment to Esau from Isaac through his flesh because he did eat of his venison. But there's no love reason given on Rebecca's side just because. When these two were together in the womb, there is a struggle. As Rebecca testified, there's a struggle. I believe that that struggle exists in every believer when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our lives. I believe all believers have an Esau and a Jacob living in them. And like Rebecca carrying twins, there remains a struggle therein. Now, both of these boys were nothing to write home about. And quite honestly, their children as a whole were nothing to write home about either. The biggest difference I see between the two is Jacob valued the birthright. Esau did not. I'm getting late in the message. I'm going to skip a lot of this. But I challenge you to look at Jacob. You will see with Jacob a constant working with God, looking at what was said, valuing what was said. Yeah, he messed up a lot along the way. But you see this relationship. I went back and looked at Esau to, to, to find any kind of like personal relationship with God. I couldn't find couldn't find anything. In the war between the Amalekites and the Israelites, no specific names are listed for the Amalekites. But with the Israelites, there are names and there is some history behind these individuals. I want you to think about this leadership. The authority used, Moses, he was a Levite. But he was a Levite of the Levites. He was the leader representing priesthood. He went up. Then there was the support of the authority, Aaron, who was a Levite. And her, what we know about her, not a whole lot, but he was the, the tribe of Judah. <laughs> we have the Levites and Judah represented here. And let me tell you, the one thing we know about her is his grandson, Bezalel 
filled with God's spirit was the one God used in the construction and building of the tabernacle and the ark. He was filled with God's spirit, was given supernatural abilities. These are the, the people represented. We see the leader of the army, Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Joshua, we know, will become the leader of the armies of Israel in the conquest of the promised land of Canaan on the other side of Jordan. Now if you like me and you like to search things, I'm like, I wonder where Caleb was. You see here are two nations battling who are both of the chosen seed of Abraham through the chosen son of Isaac and Rebekah. I would say that Israel's first battle in the wilderness boot camp was a test of authority. The first few encounters in the wilderness seem to be a proving of authority to trust in what God says. But doing what God says, folks, <laughs> will bring us into inevitable battles in life as the world will come up against you. It's inevitable. You follow God, you've got troubles coming. You've got battles. This encounter with the Amalekites seemed to be representative of the inner battle of the flesh and the spirit. What some preachers refer to as the white dog and the black dog and which one you're going to listen to. I see this similar to Eve's choice in the garden when one part of her is that of what God said to do and the voice of Satan of the freedom to satisfy the flesh and to choose. We could liken this to many things in our life. What about losing weight? <laughs> it is a battle between health and pleasure. We tend to choose pleasure and we get away with it for a time when we're young and can eat anything, but then it turns into addictions in older age. We eventually lose the battle in the end. Ever notice in trying to diet by your willpower that it's even harder to diet? I mean, I, as soon as I try, I feel I get defeated more, I'm more focus on it. You know, I've lost some weight, and people might ask me, depending on who might ask me, I, I may or may not say this, but you know, I prayed about it. I tried in my effort, and it got worse. And then somehow now, I can't even explain it. But I have lost some weight, and it's good for me. As we look at the, the detailed tactics of Israel and their fight with the Amalekites, may I first point out that these tactics are not in any way natural to man's ways. As a matter of fact, they are crazy. Send three men up to a mountain to keep a rod raised to win a battle? But that seems to be God's trademark. If you want to look at that trademark, I found the, the book of 1 Corinthians bears these, many of these thoughts out well. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. Verse 21, For after that in the wisdom of God the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. 1 Corinthians 1.25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 1 Corinthians 2.14, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 3.19, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. Now I'm going get, to get to the points here. Let's look at the details of God's tactics. First of all, Moses and Aaron and Hur went up 
That's a good place to go up. Up is the direction to God. Up is the place of the perspective from God. In the battle with the flesh, we must approach God to seek perspective from His view. Number two, the key to success was Moses' hands lifted up with the rod of God in his hand. 1 Timothy 2.8, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. First of all, the hands that go up, it says, must be holy, clean, set apart, hands for the work of God. I believe the key to winning battles of this world is by a most unusual tactic, prayer. Prayer seems like a senseless tactic in the flesh. Prayer seems to have more questions than answers. Like, why does God just not do what He knows that needs to be done? And the Scripture tells us He already knows what we need before we ask. Well, why don't you have to ask? I mean, in this world, I mean, my goodness, you, you take out every little thing you don't have to do, you know, and get, get it done, right? Prayer is something that bridges between the physical and the spiritual. It's unnatural to us, and therefore we naturally resist it, and we struggle with it, but we need to just trust it by faith. And I will suggest you ask God, and he'll show you some things about prayer. Number three, there is a physical battle as well as a spiritual battle. Did you notice Joshua and his chosen army did use swords at the ground on the front lines? But the battle was not won by the sword. It was won spiritually on the mountaintop through prayer. Anytime Israel battled in the flesh alone, they failed. As the song goes, the arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Number four, the spiritual battle of prayer is a weary work. Moses' legs were tired. Aaron and her made him a seat. There's nothing wrong with that, folks. We don't have to have some kind of stature, you know, in these things and all these rules we put around stuff. His arms were weary, so Aaron and her had to support them. It reminds me of the scripture for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. We need to support each other in prayer. Pastors need support of prayer by his people. Number five, I'd like to bring up the point that Moses, Aaron, and her took notice of the results of their prayer warfare. They noticed what happened in the battle when the prayer hands came down and began losing the battle. But when the hands went up, they began to win the battle. It's important to evaluate the results of our prayer life. Keeping a prayer list and reviewing God's answering is a valuable thing to us. Moses took his rod. It was proven. He trusted How many times do we pray without following up? That is like shooting at a target and not evaluating the result so that we can adjust and get closer to the bullseye. Who does that? Can you imagine shooting and not looking at the results? I, I mean, there just seems to be no purpose in that. But how many times do we do that with prayer? Now, there were two offensive weapons in this warfare. The instrument used by Joshua to defeat the Amalekites was the sword. Exodus 17, 13, and Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Number two, the sword was the instrument. Okay? 
but the success of the sword was dependent on Moses' hands staying up and what I will say, the power of prayer. Ephesians 6, 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You can know the Word of God, you could study the Word of God, but the Word of God in itself <laughs> will not win the battle in this sense. Ephesians 6, 18 continues, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching therein too with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. What do I want you to take away with this message? Well, whatever the Holy Spirit tells you today. But some of the things I thought about, most of us understand we need to get in the Word of God. It's somewhat practical to set up times of Bible reading and to study to realize that for the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, Hebrews 4.12. We are more familiar with the ground-fighting, hand-to-hand combat that Joshua did, but we are not as attentive to the spiritual prayer battle on the mountain that Moses fought. And it's that prayer battle was the difference in winning and losing the battle. They go hand in hand. I don't, if you're like me, man, you probably got a prayer life that needs to be raised way up from where it's at. So I'd hope that you take more serious your prayer life and make changes that would bring you into a more regular, fervent, and proving in your prayer life. On Wednesday evenings, that's what we do. <laughs> if, you, if you think about it, that's our goal, is we work on our sword, the Word of God, in all sorts of fashion, whether it's memorizing, we're looking at doing some other different things, we're looking at witnessing and just, just working on that, using that sword. And then the other part of the service, we pray. Heads bowed and eyes closed. God showed us how to have victory. He taught us how to fight. Yes, we're on the ground. Yes, we need to know the Word of God, but without prayer, we don't win the battle. In this demonstration with the Amalekites, which was no surprise to God, he shows us how to fight. I pray that you have a different spirit in you than what's in most of this world today of serving God. That like Caleb, you would follow God fully. Would you be drawn to, away from the world and drawn to God? The trust in His most unusual ways of doing things and to see Him work.
and they gain confidence to the point where you're fully rested in Him. Where's your issue today? That's between you and God. Ask Him to help you in whatever that is where you need help. There we go, a prayer. A powerful prayer. Don't come out here and say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. Sounds like in your flesh you're going to do it. You need to just fall on your face before God and ask Him, say, God, I need you to do this. I will do my part. I will fight on the ground, but I know that it's only going to be one. The battle is the Lord's. encourage you to live for God it's a growing thing folks it's that's not a it's a continual growth thing we, we even know it in our personal lives and just like I said raising our kids it's it's how you grow you need to continue to grow it's when you turn back and when you stop is the problem let's pray father thank you for your word pray your blessings upon this people work in their hearts and lives, and Lord God, may they pray more than they ever have before. For we ask it in Jesus' name.